The Bible, like life, is full of storms. Storms fascinate us. Storms frighten us. Storms also tend to give us a perspective on the things in life that really matter. During these weeks of hurricane season, we are exploring together some of the storied storms of the Bible. We're seeking to learn from them about God's presence in the midst of life's trying times, and we're seeking to understand maybe some of the ways that we can prepare our lives for the inevitable storms which lie ahead. Today, we remember the first great storm recorded in all of history, the flood. Through it, God certainly punished the sin of humankind, but through it, God also preserved for himself a remnant. In order, you would hear God to restore God, prayer and renew, announcing different parts of the goodness of creation, of his creation, as good. Please pray with me. He would call something forth into being, and then he would look at it, and he would say, hey, holy God, may the, you know what? Words of my mouth. It's really good. And the meditation of our hearts it is it's exactly be acceptable. What I had in your mind, sight, you who are our strength. I'm really good at this. And our Redeemer. And the things that I make. Look, Amen. Look at them. They are really good. Good. If you were yesterday to read the first was a good chapter day, would you agree? Of the first book of the Bible, yesterday it was a good, over the day, over and over and over. Where again, we consider the beauty of the created order in which we are privileged to live. We smile a lot. Yesterday, I had the privilege of being on the beach with my niece and my nephew, who are two and one. And it was wonderful to see their interest in something as simple as a broken leaf stuck halfway in the sand because what might be beneath there? Or their fascination at those little bubbles, you know, that come up where the wave comes up and then it recedes and then there's that little place where a little, little puff of air comes out. Somebody's under there, right? Trying to breathe. Well, where are they? We dug, we dug, we never ran across one of those little things that was breathing through those vent holes. I don't know how far down they must be, but that fascinates me. The dolphin were only about 10 yards from the edge of the water. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm not sure I've ever seen a dolphin quite that close up, and they are impressive. They are much larger than I had in my mind. And he would flap his tail, and I thought he was beating the fish into submission before he was eating them. I don't know, but it was quite a show. And then there were starfish littered along the beach. Now, these are things that you have seen every day, but for Mia and Larry, it was a first. And it was so exciting to turn the starfish over and see that it was still very much alive and to put it close enough to the water where it's amazing how quickly they move. All five, I mean, it's not five legs, right? It's like a thousand legs under there, but it looks like five from the top. It's amazing. It's beautiful. 
and how fascinated they were with just the tiniest little seashell. Waves lapped up, the tide came in, gulls and pelicans dove into the water, the breeze blew, the sun shone, it was good. Now I'll be the first to admit to you there are some parts of the created order that I would not pronounce good. Mosquitoes, cockroaches, snakes. I don't even care that there are some that you think are good, just snakes in general, that whole category. I could probably, I feel like, live without. I'd probably put spiders in that list as well. But some of you love those things. God loves all those things, and he has pronounced them good. Without exception, God looks upon creation and says, it is good. But God's crowning achievement in all of creation, better to God than seahorses or shooting stars, better than whales and elephants, better than volcanoes and eagles and puppy dogs and parakeets, better than mountains and valleys and springs in the deep of the earth, better than all of those to God. One part of creation was pronounced very good. You and me. Humankind. Creation may make us smile, but humanity brings a smile to the face of God. God created us in his image. And then by great grace and with great hope and profound love, God blessed us with the privilege of serving as stewards over the rest of his created order. And then he set us free to do it. We are not puppets controlled by God. We are made in the image of God to be in relationship with him. And yes, he would love to control things through us, but only through those who would submit to him. And it didn't take very long for the hearts of everyone on the whole earth to be set toward their own agenda. Unfortunately, by the time we reach the sixth chapter of Genesis, that's really not very long. Chapter one, it is good, it is good, it is good. Ooh, it is very good. Chapter six, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. God saw that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had ever made man. God's heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe them out. I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. No more horrible condemnation has ever been levied. No more piercing a verdict ever pronounced. The Lord our God the God of our creation, our Father, the very lover of our souls, was so grieved by human sinfulness, by the wickedness that we had woven into our lives. God was so heartbroken by the way that we perverted his goodness that he was actually sorry that he had made us. That is some bad news. In the days of Noah, the text tells us, 
that every inclination of the hearts and minds of human beings was continually evil all the time. For those of you who believe in total depravity, this is actually total, total depravity. Not only was every part of human life touched by sin, but every part of human life was totally sinful. Evil didn't just lap up on their lives. Evil had become their way of life. Things must have been pretty bad, would you agree? Think for a moment about what life would be like if evil were in the hearts and minds of every person upon the earth continually all the time. Things must have been pretty bad. I wonder how our present generation would compare to things in the days of Noah. By God's judgment, how often are the hearts and minds of human beings now set on evil all the time? The problem was that people had rejected God. They had completely abandoned any relationship with God whatsoever. Now, you and I readily acknowledge the ways in which Jesus was rejected when he lived upon the earth. We, we know about the rejection that Jesus suffered. We know how his disciples abandoned him in what we perceive to be his hour of need. We acknowledge the rejection, the denial, the abandonment that Christ suffered. What I don't think we often acknowledge is that that's the rejection and abandonment by human beings that God has been suffering since the very first generation. Generation after generation after generation, human beings have been rejecting and abandoning God. And it's real rejection. I don't know how many of you have ever really been rejected by someone that you really loved. But rejection is painful. Rejection is heartbreaking. Rejection has a tendency to sour our hope. God responded to the rejection of humankind with grief. The scripture says that God was deeply grieved because the people whom he had created, the people who he loved, the people whom he had brought forth out of nothingness, the people who he had created to be in a relationship with him had rejected him. Now things had gotten so bad in the days of Noah that God was willing to take the most radical of steps to clean things up. Now you and I do not think about a flood as being a means of cleaning something up, do we? We think about a flood as creating mud and filth and bringing things that should be outside of our lives, rushing inside to the midst of our lives and to the things that we possess and sometimes washing away the things we love. But you see, that's what God had to do. He had to wash away the things that humanity had fallen in love with in order that he might restore in their hearts the first love the love they were created to have. It's a pretty brutal story. For those of us who would like to say after a horrible storm somewhere in the world where some catastrophic loss of property and life takes place, that, well, God wasn't in that. God doesn't do those things. If we have a biblical faith, we can't say that. 
If we have a biblical faith, we have to acknowledge that God is in control and God does sometimes send forth what we consider to be catastrophic storms in order that people might be reminded, reawakened, come to an acknowledgement that they do not have it all together, but that even when our lives are in chaos, God can still hold us together. You're thinking to yourselves, that's really not the gospel I like to hear. I don't really like to think about God that way. When we begin to take steps away from what the Bible says about God, God's self-revelation, what God says about himself in Scripture, then we begin conceiving a God for ourselves. When we start saying, well, I don't really like that story, so I'm going to ignore it. I'd rather, Carmen, that you be focusing on the end of that story or focusing on Noah and the preservation of life. Focus on the animals. Did they really go on two by two or seven by seven? What is that about clean and unclean? And how did Noah know? Let's not get all caught up in how much pitch was wiped onto the inside and outside of the ark. Let's get our hearts and minds around the fact that in all creation, God could only find one faithful father. In all the earth, God could only find one faithful man. Think about all the people that live upon the earth and how heartbroken God must have been that all but one had rejected him. But God found Noah to be faithful. Now, the faithfulness of Noah is determined by one thing. He walked with God. I'm going to tell you, in the days of Noah, Noah was the odd man out. If everybody else in his family, so you're talking about his parents, his brothers and sisters, his clan of folks, everybody in his neighborhood, everybody that he dealt with on a daily basis, everyone in his nation, everyone everywhere except for him was walking away from God. Noah walked with God. How odd do you think that made him? Some of us think to ourselves, well, that would set me apart from the crowd. I'd be so special. It set Noah apart from the only crowd there was. Because of the faithfulness of Noah, because we assume of his spiritual leadership in his own household, his wife was also found to be faithful, and his three sons and their three wives. I want you to consider that for a moment. Those of you who are raising children, consider that Noah and his wife were able to raise three boys in a completely depraved culture, in a culture where not even the institutions around them, certainly not whatever their media of the day was, nobody was supporting the way that they thought about God or morality or right choices. Nobody supported them in those things. They didn't have a parenting class. They were the only parents that were seeking to raise their children to know and love and serve the Lord. You think that made them a little odd in their community? Well, God was about to ask them to get even weirder. In the middle of the desert, hundreds of miles from the closest ocean, 
years before the first clouds formed on the horizon. Long before meteorologists were getting nervous about the fact that it appeared to them with wringing hands that the oceans were rising. Long before anyone thought that it was odd that it was raining in the desert. Long, long, long before then, God said to Noah, build me an ark. God gave Noah very specific instructions about how that ark was to be constructed. I feel compelled to review those numbers with you. Because the magnitude of the ark is pretty staggering. For those of you who own boats, or for those of you who from time to time take cruises, I want you the next time you go on a cruise to think about the size of this ship that God asked Noah to construct. Noah, one guy, not a shipbuilder, in the middle of the desert. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It should be made entirely of cypress wood. Anybody think that's a lot of cypress? It should be covered with pitch on the inside and out. It should have three interior decks, but only one door. No windows. It should have 18-inch vents all the way around the top just beneath the roof. Now, I don't know how many resources it took Noah to get this project together. We do know it took Noah a really long time. Think about the human time required. Think about the money or the financial resources required to build an ark in the middle of the desert. Now, in addition to building the ark, what else did Noah have to do? Oh, come on, you know the story. He had to get those animals together. Some of you have been on safaris. I want you to imagine a global safari in which two of everything needs to be collected and it needs to be brought home. For those of you who have ever told a child, no, no, we don't take in stray animals. See, you wouldn't have done well with this instruction. I'm assuming that Noah's wife and his boys and their daughters were all in on this and maybe they sort of had a divide and conquer system to things. All right, Ham, you go out there and you collect all of the things that creep and crawl. And Jephthah, you go out there and you collect two of every bird. And I don't know, you're going to have to build an aviary. Was that in the instructions? No, but it seems sensical because if we gather them, where are we going to keep them until it's time for them to get on board? Or maybe as we sort of play it out in our minds, God sort of announced to all the animals in some voice, when it started to rain, head for the ark. Here's the problem. They were all in the ark before it started to rain. God told Noah, it's going to start raining. Get on board and seal the door shut. I'm actually happy for Noah and his family for how loud it must have been in the ark. Because I cannot imagine when the water started to rise, how many people fled in hope to an ark that was not built for them. All humanity, save for the eight people on the ark, every other human being upon the earth died. We think of our, we think to ourselves, well, this whole thing only took 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, contraire. 
Scripture says this. The rain started to fall on the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year. It stopped raining 40 days and 40 nights later. But the floodwaters didn't even begin to recede until five months after that, a full 150 days. 20 feet of water covered even the highest mountains of the earth. Genesis 7.23 says, During that time, every living thing upon the earth perished. Only Noah was left and those who were with him upon the ark. And God remembered Noah, and God began to blow a breeze across those flood waters all around the earth. And God opened what scripture describes as the drains in the bottom of the ocean so that the water would recede. It's a pretty amazing idea, isn't it? Yeah, we haven't found those yet. And on the first day of the 10th month, remember this all started on the 17th day of the second month, those of you who are calendar keepers, on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains began to appear. And on the 27th day of the second month of Noah's 601st year, that's right, a full year and 10 days later, the earth was completely dry. And God said to Noah, come out of the ark and all of those with you. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said, repopulate the earth. He gave them the same instruction that he had given to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Are we the children of Adam and Eve? Certainly. But even more so, we are the children of Noah. The remnant that God preserved is the only remnant whose generations proceed into history. God established a covenant with Noah and with his family and through them with every generation that would ever follow. You know the, the sign of the covenant, right? What is the sign of the covenant? Covenant of Noah. What does God set in the, in the sky after a storm? A rainbow? Here's the thing. We tend to think about the rainbow, which we're so glad comes out, right? It's a beautiful thing to, to see. We tend to think of the rainbow as our reminder that God will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Is that the way you think of the rainbow? Here's what scripture actually says about the rainbow. Is it the sign of the covenant? Yes. But it is not set in the sky to remind us of God's promise never to destroy the earth with a flood. God sets the rainbow in the sky to remind himself of the promise that he has made to never pour out his wrath in that way again. Listen, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant that will be for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. For whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember, says the Lord, the everlasting covenant between me and all living creatures of every kind upon the earth. The rainbow is a profound sign of a profound promise, a covenant that reaches from the days of Noah even to today. And from now 
until the end of time, that God will never again cover this beautiful creation with water, flooding life. The rainbow is a reminder to God as much as it is a reminder to us. You and I should be reminded when we see the rainbow that God hates sin and that there was a time that in order to get rid of sin, God was willing to get rid of human beings. I am profoundly grateful that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to take upon himself the punishment that was due to us all that no longer would God's wrath flow forth in a flood upon the earth, but that God's wrath poured forth upon Christ, who alone died, one for many. The wrath that was upon him should have been the flood that was upon us all. As much as we are the sons and daughters of Adam, we are more so the sons and daughters of Noah, but even more so, we are the brothers and sisters of Christ. Because of his sacrifice on our behalf, an ark is no longer needed. The storm is brewing on the horizon, and we, were, we are without excuse to deny it. We know that God's wrath is coming again. We know that it's coming in final form. For those of you who say to yourselves, well, I don't know, I don't know anything about that. Let me tell you that you need to read the words of Jesus Christ that are recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have time to read the whole New Testament, just read Jesus' words in the Gospels. He gives us perfect prediction, forecasting, forewarning of what is in store in the future. And it is a storm of epic proportions. Or read the book of Revelation. There is a storm on the horizon. I do not know precisely the time. Neither does Jesus. He said that is only for the Father to know. Here's what I do know. The evacuation plan has been published. We know the name of the one who will provide for us the lifeboat to eternity. You get to choose during the next worldwide catastrophic storm. Will it be a flood? No. Does scripture tell us what it will be? Yes. You get to choose this time whether or not to walk with God, the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, and get on board with him or suffer the annihilation that will come. The storm of Noah should be received as a huge storm warning for all of us that we want to be found by God to be faithful that when he surveys the earth if even he sees evil in the hearts of many he would see Christ in the hearts of some that when his view ranges across the earth as the psalmist says God would see us and say they walk with me Come what may, they will be saved. That is the remnant that will repopulate the new heaven 
on the new earth where we will be privileged to walk with God forever. The storm warnings have been raised. The storm flags are flying. The evacuation plan is in place. Now's the time. Even as odd as it may make us by comparison to those around us, now is the time to walk with God and him alone. Let us pray. Holy God, we stand this day upon your promises. We stand this day upon the promise that you made to Noah, and we stand this day on the promise that you have made to us in Jesus Christ, that whoever would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Open our hearts and minds, Lord God, to the ways in which we have rejected and abandoned you. And then invite us, Lord God, to walk the way of salvation with Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. In his name we ask it.